morning. Isn't this a beautiful day? Probably getting a little warm. It's nice in here. I'm glad to see everybody. If we're, we're a little bit smaller in numbers because our men are away, as, as Mark told us, our pastor and about 19, 20 of our guys are up at camp uh, this weekend. Um, I'm sure God is blessing them. So that means I get the privilege of being with you. I don't know if I've told you lately, but I really love you. I love this church. Oh, thank you. This is the best place in the world to stand, to look into your faces. It really is wonderful. And I never, I never take this for granted for one second. What a great privilege. And we have a wonderful privilege this morning because we're going to finish up Mark chapter 13. And we're dealing with eschatology. Eschatology is the study of future things. Second coming of Jesus. The end of the world. And oh my gosh, has there been a flood of misinformation and an awful lot of wacky predictions about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So guess this is what you and I get to do today. This is why I'm so glad you're here and I'm glad I'm here. We get to open our Bibles today and read exactly what the Son of God said about his own return. It's wonderful. And if I was going to take all of eschatology and summarize it into a sentence, this would be it. Jesus is coming back. And we have to be ready. If you love the topic of eschatology, if this is exciting you, Bill Kahn, raise your hand, Bill. Raise your hand. There's Bill Kahn. He's starting a class next week, next Sunday, first service, second service. First service, 9 o'clock covering uh, eschatology for the next eight weeks to ten weeks. It is so. We have a class starting in Rock University. But the, the big question for you and I, knowing that Jesus is coming back and we have to be ready, is are we ready? That's the question. Are you ready for him to come back? Am I ready? Do we even know what that means to be ready? We're going to pray together and then we'll open God's word and read what Jesus said about his return. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for a church where it's air-conditioned and it's safe and we can come and just love you and worship you and be together as a family. Father, we pray for Pastor Mark and all the men of our church that are away. We ask that you would just bless them richly as they fellowship together and worship you and learn about you. Bring them back safely home to us, I pray. And now, Lord, as we open this particular place in Scripture, it's so easy for us to... um, come with a lot of preconceived ideas of our own. Lord, I pray you would prevent us from trying to twist your word to fit our expectations, but instead we would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see exactly what you've said and so that we wouldn't try to make you fit us. We would fit what you have told us in your word. We ask you now to teach us this hour in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let's turn to Mark 13. We're going to finish the end of the chapter. Uh, verses 24, we're going to read verses 24 to 37. While you're turning there, let me set the context for what's going on. Pastor Mark covered this last week. Jesus and his disciples are sitting together on the Mount of Olives. The sun is setting on Jesus' final day his last day of public ministry on earth. 
Jesus spent most of this day in the temple teaching. So today would be the last day that the truth of God would ever be proclaimed in the temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus and the disciples left the temple, they probably went out the eastern gate, would walk downhill, get to the Kindern Valley, cross a little stream there, and then walk up the slope to the Mount of Olives. And when they sat down, they could see Jerusalem. They could see the temple in the fading light of day. We're in the middle of what we call Passion Week. This is Jesus' last week on earth. The next events on the Lord's calendar are the Last Supper, then his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion on what we call Good Friday, and then his resurrection three days later on what we call Easter Sunday. I'd like to have the photo, please. Let me. I brought a photo uh, to show you of uh, Jesus on the Mount of Olives. There it is. I'd like you to imagine yourself, if you can, sitting there with Jesus on this day. If you were one of his 12 disciples you would have just spent the last three to three and a half years of your life with Jesus. You would have witnessed his miraculous powers and his amazing words. You would have seen him heal every kind of illness. You would have seen him calm storms, walk on water, and raise people from the dead. You would have heard him proclaim the truth about the kingdom of God, and you would have seen him prove to you time and time again that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and not only that, he is God himself. Now, just a few days before what happened here on the Mount of Olives, on what we call Palm Sunday, Jerusalem was full of hundreds of thousands of Jews were there for Passover. And remember when Jesus entered They put palm branches down in front of him, took off their garments and put them in front of the colt he was riding. They were welcoming him as a king coming to Jerusalem. On that Sunday, if you had been with Jesus, your expectations would have been sky high because you would have believed just what the crowd believed, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to be crowned as king. He was going to set up his earthly kingdom right then. Yeah, but then, after that triumphal entry, You would have been with Jesus when he cursed the fig tree. The curse that represented the curse that was coming to Israel for not bearing fruit. You would have been with Jesus yesterday when he went to the temple and he cleaned out the temple courts of those corrupt buyers and sellers. You would have heard their shouts of outrage from those vendors. You would have seen the hatred in their eyes as tables were overturned and debris spread everywhere. And then today you would have returned back to that temple where Jesus confronted the powerful religious leaders, the ones that wanted to kill him. And you would remember that Jesus probably told you at least three times that he was coming to Jerusalem not to be king, but to be arrested and to be crucified. And then he would raise three days later. So do you see why your head would be spinning with all the events that were going on in this week? You would wonder, when is Jesus going to be crowned king? When does that happen? You'd start to think, well, maybe Jesus is going to be on the throne after he rises from the dead in a few days. But then today, when you were with Jesus and you left the temple, you got the shock of your lives. Jesus told you the temple would be destroyed. Remember, let's look back at uh, Mark chapter 13. We're there now. Look at verses 1 and 2. We covered this last week with Pastor Mark. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. 
I imagine that temple was spectacular to look at. In verse 2, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Do you see how confused you'd be if you were one of the disciples now? No wonder they asked the question they asked in verse 4. Let's look back at verse 4. They said, Tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. The disciples asked for clarification. They wanted to know, okay, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When is all that going to happen? The answer that Jesus gave them and he gives us is an overview of what's going to happen from that moment on the Mount of Olives until he comes back, his second coming. What the disciples couldn't know is the answer Jesus was giving them was covering over 2,000 years and counting. Last week, Pastor Mark took us through the first part of Jesus' answer. Today, we're going to read the last part. Let's read together now. Chapter 13, verses 24 to 37. I promise you I did not have a lot of coffee at breakfast. I've had none. I am just so excited about this passage in Scripture. This is, I still have goosebumps. I, I need to calm down. Okay. Verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Verse 30, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It's like a man away on a journey, who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Here's the outline for this passage. Jesus starts by talking about his second coming. Then he gives us the parable of the fig tree and then the exhortation to watch. This is an amazing place in Scripture because Jesus has just spent three to three and a half years with his disciples and he's getting ready to leave his disciples and return to the Father in heaven. I can't help it, but you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of every time my wife and I go visit our grandchildren in Idaho. We have the best time with them and when we're getting near our departure, we always tell them, okay, here's when we'll be back. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here in a sense. He's telling us when he will be back. Let's look at verse 24. Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation. Okay, what tribulation is Jesus referring to? 
We saw this last week in the first part of chapter 13. Remember, Jesus warned his disciples that many, many false prophets were going to come and they were going to deceive a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah or claiming that they had the truth. So Jesus said that in the end times, there would be a rise in false religions. There would be earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars are going to dominate the news. But this wasn't the tribulation. This was just the beginning of birth pangs. The tribulation, Jesus mentioned in verse 19. Look at Mark uh, chapter 13, verse 19. Again, Pastor Mark covered this last week. Jesus says, for those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never shall. In the future is going to come a time of terrible trouble and suffering unlike anything the world has ever known. It's called the Great Tribulation. And after that tribulation period, Jesus will return. Do you see what Jesus just promised us here? You see it? Look at it again. Look what Jesus just promised us. He is promising that the future of the world, the future of humankind, is not going to be decided by politics. It's not going to be decided by military power or karma or anything else. It is only going to be decided by the Lord himself. Everything, everything is in his all-powerful hands. You know, in a room this big today, some of you have tribulation in your life. You have confusion and pain and trouble right now that you're dealing with. Jesus' promise to you is the same as he's promising here. He is in absolute control of everything. Everything is in his, his hands, even when and especially when we can't make sense out of our situation. He is still in control. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives this day, as he said this, he was just a few days away from allowing himself to be betrayed, allowing himself to be humiliated, arrested, and executed. But when he returns, when Jesus returns, he is not coming back as a babe in a manger. He is not coming back as a suffering Savior on the cross. Look again at how Jesus describes his second coming. It's in verses 24 to 27. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. When Jesus comes back, it will not be a sunny day like today or a moonlit night. When Jesus comes back, all the lights will go out as the universe becomes unglued. You know, the Apostle Peter was sitting there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus when he said this. Let me put on the screen for you, Second Peter 3, 10 to 13. Look what Peter wrote. This is what Peter wrote talking about this second coming of Jesus. It's coming up now. There it is. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are be to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The word that Peter uses for destroyed here in the Greek means to let loose, to let go. He is saying when Jesus comes, he is going to let loose. He's going to let go of the universe. All of those atoms that hold the universe together, Christ is going to let go of them all. When I was in high school, I had a science teacher that taught us that there was something in the universe that kept it all together. He didn't know what this was, so he called it cosmic glue. So in high school, I learned that cosmic glue held the universe together. A few years ago, I did a project for NASA and the Kennedy Space Center. They, too, confirmed absolutely that there is a power that keeps the universe running like clockwork. But they can't identify it. So they call it mysterious stuff. I'm not making this up. We see in Second Peter and we see in Mark 13 that Jesus is identified as the cosmic glue, as the mysterious stuff that's holding it all together. Because when he comes back, he's going to let it all go. He's going to let go of this universe, this, this corrupt world by, that is cursed by sin. He's going to let that all go and he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth where his righteousness dwells. Dear brothers and sisters, this is the power of our Savior. This is the Jesus that we pray to. This is the Jesus that we are trusting to save our souls. Back to Mark 13. When Jesus describes his return, he quotes almost entirely from Scripture. Let's look at it again. Verse 24 to 26. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I'm going to put Isaiah's prophecy on the screen for you. Isaiah 13.10. Isaiah wrote this prophecy where he was describing a day of judgment that would come when the Lord returns at the end of the age. This was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. Look at what Isaiah wrote. He said, The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. 700 years before Jesus said what he said on the Mount of Olives. That's what Isaiah wrote. And then about 80 years, maybe 80 to 100 years after Isaiah wrote that, the Holy Spirit came upon a man named Daniel. And he gave Daniel visions to the future, how the second coming of Christ and the end of the age. Let me put Daniel 7.13 on the screen. Here's what Daniel wrote under the power of the Holy Spirit. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven came one like the, a son of man. And he came to up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Ancient of Days is a name for God. The Son of Man is a name that Jesus used so many times to refer to himself. Coming with the clouds of heaven speaks of Jesus' divine glory. Now we know that when Jesus left this world 2,000 years ago, he left in a cloud of glory and he's going to come the same way. Let's look at Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. That's coming up for you too. And after Jesus had said these things, 
he was lifted up while the disciples were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as the disciples were gazing intently into the sky while Jesus was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The Apostle John was standing right there. He watched the ascension. The Apostle John later wrote the book of Revelation. Let me put Revelation 1.7 on the screen for you. Because John wrote this. He said, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. When Jesus comes back, he's going to be dressed for the occasion. He's coming in all his glory for all to see. Wow. It's okay to smile at this news. This is really good news. Look at verse 27, back to Mark 13. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Angels are often used as God's gatherers. Here they are gathering believers. But do you know that angels also gather unbelievers? Here's Matthew 13:49. It's coming up on the screen. Jesus also said, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. So the angels will be busy gathering the wicked as well as gathering the elect. So in verse 27 of Mark 13, Jesus says the angels will gather his elect or his chosen ones. Who are his elect? Who are his chosen ones? The elect are believers. The elect are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. But this statement right here in this passage from Jesus raises a question that scholars and students have been pondering and quite frankly have been arguing about for centuries. Here's the question. Are you ready? In verse 27, if the elect means all believers, in other words, the church, then this statement from Jesus seems to indicate that the church will indeed go through the great tribulation. Because Jesus already said that he is coming at the end of the tribulation to gather his elect. But if the church is raptured or taken up to be with Jesus before the tribulation, then the elect mentioned here mean those who are left behind that come to Christ during the worldwide revival that happens during the tribulation period. Okay, so which one is correct? What answer is correct? <laughs> well, we can't know for sure because Jesus didn't say. Personally, I believe and I hope that we are raptured before the tribulation. But here's what we do know for sure. Do you see it? Jesus just made us a promise, and it is the best promise imaginable. Look at it again. Jesus is promising us that whoever trusts in him, past, present, or future, no one will miss entering his kingdom. Our salvation is absolutely secure in Christ, no matter what happens in the world, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what happens, we are safe 
in him forever. So to summarize part one of our outline, the second coming of Christ, Jesus declares very clearly that he will return. This is a fact. He is going to return after a period of great tribulation on earth and the the unmistakable sign of his return will be nothing short of the disintegration of the universe. Jesus will return in his full power and glory as God. Our salvation is secure and his return is getting closer every hour. Let's move on to part two, the parable or the lesson of the fig tree. This is amazing. Get ready, verses 28 to 31. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In verse 28, when Jesus says, now learn this parable, he is not making a suggestion. He is not giving us a good recommendation like you might recommend a book to somebody. In the Greek, this is command language. He is saying, learn this. Understand this. Jesus is saying, learn the meaning of what I am about to teach you. So I think we should pay attention. I have a photo I'll put up on the screen for you now. A picture, that's a fig tree budding. Jesus' lesson involves the very common fig tree. They're all around Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem knew that fig trees always lose their leaves in the winter. And the new buds of growth that you see here, they don't come in the beginning of spring and they don't come in the middle of spring. The new buds come toward the end of spring, just before summer. So Jesus says, learn this lesson. Just as summer comes without human effort, so God will fulfill his kingdom plan without human effort. He says in verse 29, even so, when you too, when you see all these things happening, recognize or know that he is near, he's right at the door. When we see all the things coming that Jesus has described, we can know he's coming soon, just like we can know that summer is coming when that tree begins to bud. Verse 30 is wonderful. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this means everything he is telling us will come to pass. Jesus is not guessing. Jesus is not making a prediction. Jesus is God. He is stating the facts. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation is Jesus talking about? The word generation in scripture means a period of time of about 40 years. That's a typical generation, about 40 years. So the big question in verse 30 is this. Is Jesus speaking about his generation there with the disciples in the first century? Or is Jesus speaking about a future generation? I believe the answer is both. Because I think what we have here is Jesus giving us a near and a far prophecy at the same time. Remember the question the disciples asked. The disciples wanted to know, when will the temple be destroyed and when will you set up your kingdom? So the near part of Jesus' answer was fulfilled in A.D. 70 within that first generation when the temple was indeed destroyed. There was not one brick left upon another. The Romans came in under General Titus and they demolished the temple and over Josephus, the historian tells us, over one million Jews were killed. 
and many more were taken away as slaves. So that first century generation, the generation Jesus was speaking to on the Mount of Olives, did indeed see the temple prophecy fulfilled, just as the Lord promised. But Jesus went beyond the temple destruction to talk about a future time of great tribulation and the collapse of the universe. So the far fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy will take place at the end of the age. The generation that witnesses the great tribulation and the collapse of the universe will see Jesus return. This could be our generation. It's helpful to pause here just for a moment to say that sometimes there is tension in the truth of Scripture. There's tension in the truth of Scripture. What this means is we have things in the Word of God that are absolutely true, but they come from an infinite God. And our finite brains have trouble sometimes understanding everything he's telling us. For example, it's hard for our finite brains to fully understand the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Neither can we fully understand all the details about Jesus' second coming. One problem we have is this. To us, Jesus' first coming and his second coming is separated by thousands of years. To us, that's a huge gap. But not to God. Look at what the Apostle Peter wrote. This is 2 Peter 3.8. You know this passage, but Peter is talking about this very thing. Peter writes this, But do not let this one fact, there is a fact, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. To God, Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and return are all facets of one event our salvation. Think of it maybe if this helps you as like facets of one diamond. Ever since Jesus Christ came to earth, we can truly say that we are all living in the last days. The second coming of Jesus is the next event on God's salvation schedule. Jesus in his perfect love And in his perfect wisdom has told us now everything we need to know about his second coming. It may not be everything we want to know. But we can trust that since this is from God, we can be certain. We have been told everything we need to know on this side of eternity. So let's not get distracted by what we don't know. Let's get blessed by what we do know. Here's what we do know. He is coming back. For sure. For all of us. Look at the glorious statement in verse 31. Wow, here it happened again. I've read this passage now maybe 200 times in the last few weeks, and every time I read it, I get goosebumps. Verse 31. Wow, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. More important than the destruction of the temple, more important than the great tribulation, even more important than the second coming of Christ is Jesus Himself. Jesus just promised us that his words, he and his words are eternal, they're everlasting. This is a claim only God can make. So just before he goes away, Jesus is making sure we understand he is our Lord and our God. I'm going to put Isaiah 51.6 on the screen. This is another part of the prophecy from Isaiah. It is amazing. If you're not familiar with this passage, 
Write it down and read it when you get home. It's wonderful. Lift up your eyes to the sky. He's saying, look up into the heavens. Look up at the sky. Then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation, says the Lord, will be forever and my righteousness will not wane. Wane means to diminish or fade in any way. When we put our faith in Jesus, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, our salvation is forever. Do you see? Do you see the incredible irony in verse 31? Do you see that? Look at it again. This turns everything upside down. Look at what Jesus said in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The universe is so deep, so wide, so vast, that our brightest scientists, our best telescopes, and our most supercomputers cannot even begin to measure it yet. But Jesus says someday it's all going to go away. So here's the irony. Everything we see around us, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, it's all temporary. And everything we cannot see, the Lord, His words, and His kingdom are permanent. The invisible things are the everlasting things. So this raises an important question for you and me. What are you trusting in today? What are you trusting in? Do you trust in only the things you can see and touch? Those things are temporary. Jesus says, trust Him because He and His words and His promises and His salvation and His kingdom is everlasting. The universe will pass away, but it is impossible for the Lord and His promises to be destroyed, altered, or negated in any way. So to summarize part two of our outline, this parable of the fig tree, Jesus says, learn this lesson. Here's the lesson. God's plan for Christ's return is running right on schedule. Perfectly on schedule. Our world ravaged by sin is a dangerous place. The worse things get, the closer his return comes. We could be the generation that sees his return. So, what do we do with his information? Why did Jesus tell us this? We get the answer in the final part of his, his answer in our part three of our outline. Let's look at the exhortation to watch. Verses 32 to 37. Jesus said, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Jesus says very clearly, quite bluntly actually, that no one knows the day or hour of his return. Look at it again, verse 32. That day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You'd think that a statement like this from Jesus would stop 
anyone from ever declaring that they know the day when Jesus is coming back. Jesus said that detail is unknowable. Yet how many people through history have gone up on the mountain or made billboards or TV predictions or whatever to say, I know when Jesus is coming back. Jesus said the date of his return will not be revealed in advance. Period. End of discussion. The angels in heaven with God don't know that date and neither does Jesus, the Son of God. He doesn't know that date either. Now, people have been alarmed by this statement from Jesus right there. They say, well, if Jesus is God, then he would know the date of his return. What we need to do is we need to understand what the Bible clearly teaches about Jesus' humanity and his deity. When Jesus was on earth and he spoke these words on the Mount of Olives, he was fully human, but he was also fully God. But scripture tells us that Jesus set aside some of his divine privileges to submit everything he did, said, and even what he thought to the will of the Father. I'll put John 15:15 on the screen for you. This, this is something Jesus said, and there are many other places we could turn to in Scripture. But Jesus said, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. And here it is. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus laid aside his divine privileges, not his divine nature. Jesus submitted everything to the Father, even his thoughts. Do we submit to God like that? You and me? Do we submit everything to God, even our thoughts? The important question you and I should be asking about the second coming of Jesus is not when. It's how. How can I make sure I'm ready? You know, I think, this is just my opinion, but I think Satan is glad when Christians focus on the when and not the how. I think the devil is fine when we go off searching for dates and we start arguing over rapture and other details. He would like us to do anything rather than hear and obey what the Lord has actually said about his second coming. And what did Jesus say about his second coming? He said it over and over again. Look, verse 33. Take heed. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Do you see what the Lord just slipped in here? The Lord just slipped in a fact for us that should really encourage us. Look at it again. Jesus is telling us that there is an appointed time. God has the date, hour, minute, and second of Jesus' return circled on his calendar. But we cannot know what that time is. So we are commanded to be ready all the time. Now Jesus tucks in another mini parable. Just to underscore this point. Look at verse 34 again. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. In this parable, Jesus says that when the master of the house is away, the servants don't take a vacation. The servants don't go away. The servants keep right on working, right? They have work to do that the master gave them. Everybody Jesus was talking to would fully understand that. I'm sure we do too. 
Faithful servants never ignore their master's command. Faithful servants have that wonderful peace of knowing whenever their master comes back, he's going to find them doing the work he gave them to do. We need to probably stop here and be honest with ourselves and realize that on our own, left to ourselves, we often fail to see and fail to understand the spiritual dangers, the multitude of spiritual dangers that are around us all the time that can so easily distract us. Saying yes to the work that the Lord has told us to do means we have to say no to all kinds of things that would get in our way from doing that work. In verse 34, a doorkeeper was the person that stood at the gate of the house watching for the master's return. That was his only job. Watch for the master's return. Jesus said all of us are to be doorkeepers. We should be watchful and ready for his return. You know, sometimes it's helpful not only to look at what the Lord said, but to look at what the Lord did not say. Look at verse 34 again. Look what Jesus did not say. He did not say it's like a man away on a journey and he leaves his house and tells his servants to try to guess when he will return. Jesus did not command us to make educated guesses about his return. Jesus did not command us to argue about it, sensationalize it, or ignore it. We are commanded to keep watch and be constantly ready for his return at any moment. In verse 35, Jesus mentions four specific times. You see those? The evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, and in the morning. These happen to be the four shifts that the Roman guards kept between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written to Roman believers, so they would fully understand that Jesus just brought in a proper guard schedule reference into his uh, story. But Jesus is not saying that he's only going to come back at night. He is saying that we must be alert, just like a Roman guard on our ship. We must be alert all the time. You know, a few years ago, I had the privilege of uh, doing a video interview with with the Marine colonel that was in command of the Marine Corps base at Camp Pendleton, just down the road. As part of the interview, we started off by a big tank. That was really cool. And then we wanted to finish the interview by the main entrance to the Marine base. That's where all the cars come and go. We walked around for a while and nobody bothered us. Second, I took the camera out. A big Marine Sergeant MP seemed to materialize out of thin air. He just showed up. This was a mountain of a man. He made you proud of the Marines. He was big, and he had a big gun on his hip. And he came up, and he snapped off the sharpest salute I've ever seen to his commanding officer. But then he told us in no uncertain terms that cameras were not allowed in the restricted area where we were standing. You know, the other Marines didn't bother us. Only this one sergeant talked to us. Why? Because the other Marines were doing their job. They were checking IDs. They were checking the other vehicles. But this sergeant was the gatekeeper. He was the doorkeeper. He was there to look for this sort of thing. And he was alert. He was on it. Are we alert? Are we on it? Are we paying attention like that? You know, soon after Jesus gave the disciples this parable on the Mount of Olives, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Do you remember what he told the disciples to do while Jesus was praying? Do you remember? Stay awake. Stay alert. Watch. And what did the the disciples do? (laughs) Yeah, they fell asleep. Look at verse 35. 
Jesus says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and, there it is, find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. To be found asleep does not mean literal slumber, like some of you are demonstrating right now. To be found asleep means we are lackadaisical, we are careless, we are frivolous about our Lord's return. So to be ready for the Lord's return is not a matter of when. It's a matter of now. The only way you and I can be prepared for Christ's return in the future is to be ready now in the present. Verse 37 just brings tears to my eyes. Look at it again. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Do you remember where Jesus was when he started this answer? He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, speaking privately with his disciples. But when he gets to his last words in his public ministry, look who he's talking to. What I say to you, I say to all, I say to everyone. You and I are part of the all, we're part of the everyone. On Jesus' last day of public ministry, he spoke directly to you spoke directly to me and he is telling us to be alert. The exact hour of his return will not be revealed so we must live every hour ready for that hour. To be ready means we are doing the work he left us here to do. We are serving him and obeying him right up into the second he returns for us. So let's close with this question. It's a big question. Are you ready? What if? What if you and I wake up every morning from now on with this question, with this thought, Jesus is coming back. What can I do today to make sure I'm ready? What if from now on, tomorrow morning, every morning from this day on, you and I wake up and the first thought of our day is Jesus is coming back. What can I do today? What can I do today to be sure I'm ready? Do you think by having that thought at the beginning of the day would change how we go through our day? Would it make different, a difference in our choices? What we say, what we do, even what we think, if our goal is to be ready for the Lord's return? Would we pray differently? Would we read our Bible differently? Would we come to church differently? Would we share Christ with others differently if we wanted to be ready for his return? So this is how Mark 13 comes to a close. This is how Jesus wraps up his final day of public ministry by talking to his disciples, by talking to you and talking to me, saying, what I say to you, I say to all. Be on the alert. Watch for me. Our prayer team will be here to pray with you after the service. Let's pray. Hmm. Wow. He, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen.